So Nick, I'm really glad we had the OBG project to refer to when we made this HS episode. Yeah, you know, and actually I would even go back to say with cholestasis and with so many of our other episodes, the OBG project is like a great place to start to get the quick summary. And then they even have additional reading for us or for our listeners to dive into the topic further. Absolutely. Um, and so if you also are part of their subscription service, OBG First, you can also create your own bookshelf so that you can have your articles to go back to. They'll also send you emails and things like that about the latest journal articles and findings so that you're always up to date on the most recent literature. If you're a chief resident, you can actually get OBG First for absolutely free for one whole year. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. There's a link where you can get signed up for OBG First. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Aparna Sridhar. She is a associate clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UCLA, um, and she is also um, fellowship trained in family planning. And today, um, Dr. Sridhar is going to be talking to us about combined hormonal contraceptives. So welcome. Thank you. All right. Dr. Sridhar gave us some learning objectives for today, and just to review number one, we'll talk about understanding the endocrinology of combined hormonal contraceptive. Secondly, we'll learn how to select the appropriate combined hormonal contraceptive therapy based on the medical history, which is what I'm most excited about today. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about key aspects of prescription and follow-up from here. I guess let's jump right into it. Let's talk first about endocrinology of this particular contraceptive. Um, there are two components to these pills, right? Right. So as the name suggests, combined hormonal contraceptives include those which contain both estrogen and progestin component. The estrogen is the added, like the main benefit of the estrogen is for cycle control. Um, there is a small contribution to the suppression of ovulation. Um, if you think about all the hormonal contraceptive methods available in the market, only those containing estrogen have like high chance of giving you like the perfect menstrual cycle like feeling with cyclical bleeding. So that's the benefit estrogen brings into this mix. Natural estradiol that's actually produced by the ovaries um, has very low bioavailability, so it's not great for cycle control. So almost all of the combined hormonal contraceptives available in the market contain the synthetic form, which is like the ethanyl estradiol um, as the estrogen component. The dose of this varies from 10 microgram to 50 micrograms. Um, very few formulations actually have 10 or 50 micrograms at this point in time, and majority have some kind of dose in between. For example, the contraceptive rings that are in the market, they release about 15 micrograms of ethnyl estradiol per day. The patch um, has two different patches. One has about 30, the other one has 35 micrograms. And the pills mostly range from 10 to 35, with few of them having 10 and 50 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol. So how would this make you know, a difference? Like how would the dose make a difference? 
there can be dose dependent effects in terms of like the side effects, for example, venous thromboembolism. There can be dose dependent bleeding changes that can happen. For example, like low dose ethanol estradiol formulations may not form that thick of a lining. So you may actually have sometimes higher rates of amenorrhea, but it can also not sustain the endometrial lining that much and may cause some more bleeding in between mm -hmm. the periods too. So I think that's where ethanol estradiol component comes in. And is ethanol estradiol the only estrogen formulation is there? Not really. We also have some newer formulations. Um, they have estradiol esters such as um, estradiol valrate um, in some of the newer formulations. Um, and jumping to progestins, um, progestin does give the main contraceptive benefit. Um, I think I heard a great podcast from you guys from um, Dr. Ben Brown. Um, so that does talk about a lot of about progestins and mechanism of action and the different types of progestins. So I would probably refer the um, you know listeners to that podcast for details. But just as an overview, um, there are many different synthetic progestins in the market. Again, natural progesterone is poorly absorbed and rapidly metabolized. So we do use synthetic progestins. And these progestins have evolved over time. Um, although in the past we used to say generations, we are really trying not to use that term anymore because the first generation is really not like an old one compared to the fourth. They're all kind of you know, different in terms of the um, how they are actually um, you know, whether they are like their structure and their function. So the main difference between each progestin is how they differ in their androgenicity, um, potency, um, and some of the non-contraceptive benefits. For example, um, levonorgestrel, this is kind of a, you know, it has longer half-life. So you remember like levonorgestrel is the one that's in IUDs and everything. So for someone with heavy menstrual bleeding, probably oral contraceptive with levonorgestrel might be a better one. And the spironolactone analog drospirinone actually is probably better for acne because it has that, you know, spironolactone component or, you know, spironolactone-like action on it. So that's how the progestins differ. And that kind of sums up the endocrinology of these methods. Um, Dr. Shrithar, can you talk to us a little bit about the different types of combined hormonal contraceptives? I mean, I think, you know, we like always talk about the pill and it seems like there's so many different types of pills, but what are like other, you know, types of combined hormonal contraceptives? Sure. Um, you kind of said it, Faye, the combined hormonal contraceptive pills, there are many different formulations, right? So one of the most commonly used contraceptives in the United States with, I think, more than 25 percent of the contraceptive users use this method. And more so because, you know, such an easy contraceptive method to take, just pop a pill in your mouth every day and that's it. That's like the combined oral contraceptive pills. And I think we can go into the details of the cyclic patterns within the oral contraceptive pills next. But other than the pills, we have contraceptive drinks. Um, as of March 2021, where we are recording this podcast, we have two main formulations of rings. One is ethanol estradiol and etonogestrel ring. Um, popularly, 
we're not promoting any brands, but that's kind of the newering, which is the brand um, which is very popular. It is inserted for 21 consecutive days and removed for seven days each cycle. So meaning every cycle you use a new ring. And then now we have a new ring in the market, which is ethanyl estradiol and suggestron acetate ring, also known as Anovera. Um, and that's inserted for 21 continuous days and removed for seven days, but the same ring is used for 13 consecutive cycles. So it's kind of a long acting one considering you only need one ring for the 13 cycle duration. So those are the two ring formulations available. And then we have contraceptive patch. And currently we have two contraceptive patch available. They kind of differ by ethanyl estradiol, um, either 35 micrograms with norelgastramine as one of the uh, formulation, or we have 30 microgram of ethanyl estradiol and levonorgestrel as the second formulation. So these are kind of the overview of all the different combined hormonal contraceptives available in the market at this point in time. I want to come back to one of the points that you raised about the oral contraceptive pills. Um, and you mentioned that there are a lot of different formulations and a lot of different cycling things. I know that I feel like as a resident, I kind of picked the, you know, my standard pill that was like one of the 21-7 regimens. But as I've like read and heard more, you know, I know that there are these ones that can go for like 84 days in a row or, you know, some of these I've never touched a triphasic pill, I think, but I've heard that word thrown around. Um, can you talk us through some of that and sort of what those look like? Definitely. Um, historically, when birth control pills were developed, um, they were developed to mimic natural menstrual cycle. It was more for the acceptance at that point in time than anything. But now we know that the scheduled bleeding is not like biologically necessary and suppression of menstruation is actually sometimes beneficial for us. So there are many different cyclic patterns that are available in the current existing pill formulations. And let's start by understanding the monophasic regimen. So the monophasic regimen contains same dose of estrogen and progestin, but the number of placebo pills vary. So like Nick, as you mentioned, the 21-7 regimen contains 21 active pills and seven placebo pills. And most of the older forms of the birth control pill formulations were usually a 21-7 regimen, but you have to be careful with these because any hormone-free interval of more than seven days actually increases the risk of breakthrough ovulation. So you have to take them every day at the same time and do not miss like, you know, that extra more than that seven days dose. Then came the 24-4 formulations are there. Um, they shorten the hormone-free days. So one, they increase the efficacy. And because there are like less hormone-free days, um, all the kind of menstruation-related symptoms are less frequent because there's only four days of that. So that's the 24-4 formulation. The other monophasic regimen is our extended cycle regimen. So they'll have monophasic pills with 30 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol and levonorgestrel used continuously for three months, followed by one week of either placebo pills or 10 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol pills. So these are like marketed as the extended cycle regimen, but remember most of the birth control pills actually can be used in the extended cycle um, you know, regimen. 
Um, this not only kind of increases the efficacy, but it also minimizes the menstruation related symptoms because you're really having three um, menstrual cycles in one year. Um, so that's kind of the pills in three different monophasic regimens, 21, 7, 24, 4, and then the extended cycle. If you really think about what about the patch and the ring, um, there is data about extended continuous vaginal ring usage, and it is considered to be safe, but not much data out there about the safety of the extended cycle patch use. So most commonly ring is used in an extended cycle format. Now, what about the multiphasic regimen, right? They contain different dose of either estrogen or progestin or sometimes both each week. For example, triphasic regimen will have probably three different dosing per week. And you can recognize these pills because there is usually a tri in their name, like orthotricycline, trinessa, things like that. So the multiphasic um, oral contraceptive regimen, I think initially they developed these in the intention of like mimicking the natural cycle or like, you know, decreasing the breakthrough bleeding, but I don't really know if there is enough data to prove whether multiphasic is really beneficial. So I usually kind of go for monophasic for the most part with, you know, like the lowest form of estrogen and then kind of think about the non-contraceptive benefits. That's that's really awesome because like Nick was saying, you know, I don't feel like I was very comfortable prescribing any type of multiphasic regimen. Um, and, you know, I think that is a great explanation of, of all of the different types. Um, can you also talk to us a little bit about the safety of combined hormonal contraceptives? Because I think a lot of our patients are concerned about having something with estrogen in them. And sometimes, of course, they do have medical conditions where, you know, they may not be eligible to get um, some type of uh, contraceptive that has estrogen. Definitely, Faye. So we are all aware of the um, CDC's medical eligibility criteria, which includes recommendation for using a particular contraceptive method um, for those patients who have certain characteristics or certain medical conditions, right? So the USMEC is our guide to say which contraceptive can be used safely um, in a particular patient with particular set of like either medical conditions or personal characteristics. So this... Um, USMEC actually combines pill, patch, and ring in one group as combined hormonal contraceptives. And that's why I think we made, you know, I think we are talking about all of them together because there is comparable safety, the pharmacokinetic principles and profiles um, for all these delivery forms are pretty much similar. So um, if you look at the USMEC, the most common contraindications, and these are like you know, in USMEC, you have category one, two, three, and four, with one completely safe, two like benefits overweigh the risk, three, the risks, you know, um, overweigh the benefits, and number four would be um, completely not okay, like completely contraindication. And if you really take number four, um, breastfeeding and less than um, 21 days postpartum, smokers over the age of 35 who smoke more than 15 cigarettes per day, um, more so for the increased risk of cardiovascular disease, um, especially myocardial infarction, multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease, 
um, severe hypertension, um, acute or history of DVTPE, um, known thrombogenic mutations, history of stroke, pulmonary hypertension, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, migraines with aura, um, current or recent breast cancer, severe cirrhosis. These are all like absolute contraindications for combined hormonal contraceptives. One thing to remember, which is kind of different for pill, patch, and ring, um, is someone with um, bariatric surgery, um, especially with the malabsorptive procedures. The pills are considered, you know, category three, where you really use it if there is significant benefit and even, you know, you could potentially think about the risk. But patch and ring are considered like, safe and category one because there is no oral absorption. So apart from that, that's like one, you know, one condition wherein there is difference between pill patch and ring, but majority of the time, the contraindications are very similar. So when we keep safety in mind, we need to get a thorough medical history to make sure there is no contraindication for estrogen usage. No, that was really nice. And I, I kind of like, I've always wondered about that too, of why all of those were lumped together, but that's a very helpful explanation actually. No discussion of contraception would be complete without talking about efficacy. Um, so what about the efficacy of these varying methods with combined hormonal contraceptives? Um, are they, I mean, I assume that they're that good because they've been around for so long, but what are the pitfalls? What are the risks, et cetera? Right. When we talk about the efficacy, we think about it in two different terms, right? Either typical use versus perfect use. I always tell my patients, like, nothing is perfect in life. So we got to go by the typical use failure rates, um, which expresses the effectiveness um, who use the method, including, including those who use it like inconsistently or incorrectly, because we do forget, we do, you know, we may insert it late, um, things like that will happen. So considering that I always quote a typical use um, failure rates for women, because perfect use is like, you know, done perfectly and correctly, that's the failure rate that, that we talk about with the perfect use. For pill, patch, and ring, there is about like 7% of women become pregnant in the first year of use. This is kind of the recent data from the Guttmacher Institute. Um, and the perfect use failure rate is less than 1%, like 0.3%. But I would still quote um, the typical um, use failure rate. And sometimes I think, you know, the more human um, input that we need to do, like taking a pill every day versus, you know, having a patch every week, changing it every week and using a ring like 21 days and seven days. So there is that, you know, thing that we need to do, which increases the risk of error. But there are a lot of like, you know, technological advances now, like, you know, reminders and text-based reminders, app-based reminders that women are using, which actually makes them take it exactly at the same time every day, which improves the efficacy significantly. Um, one question that I think, you know, I was really interested in for this podcast is just how do you start someone on a combined hormonal contraceptive, right? Like how do you pick which one to start someone on? And then what if someone comes to you and they're like, I hate this pill because it's making me have breakthrough bleeding, or I hate this pill because it's making me gain weight or have like facial hair or whatever. How do you like troubleshoot those problems and figure out what to do? 
Right. So the first and foremost thing you need to, you know, make sure is safety. And once you ruled out all the contraindication, the next thing you may want to ask someone is, do they want to bleed monthly or is there any benefit from, you know, skipping the cycle? Obviously, if there is benefit from skipping menstrual cycle, you go towards an extended cycle regimen. But if they do want monthly menstrual cycle for preference or for like feeling like they're having a period or any reason that you know women may choose to have that, then I would probably think about the lowest dose of the you know ethanol estradiol or any estrogen component available because remember that's the one that is dose dependent risks associated with it. So probably the lowest dose is good to start with. And then depending on what type of non-contraceptive benefits they want, which, you know, we can go into the details of that as well. Then you pick like a protestin that's probably the best suited for some someone with like a particular need for a non-contraceptive benefit. And then that would be the pill that you would choose, or if they don't want to take it on a daily basis, um, you may kind of offer them a patch or a ring um, to go with that. So that will be the first step to start, right? So now how to start. There is a great um, resource, which I think you guys touched on it on the protestant only method podcast as well. It's called Selective Practice Recommendation. Again, it's in the same mobile application as the contraception one from CDC. So um, it's a great guide for all practical aspects of prescription and also to kind of follow any problems associated with it. So the combined hormonal contraceptive methods, whether it's pill, patch, or ring, can be started at any time, as long as we are reasonably certain that our patient is not pregnant. And that's the only criteria for starting. So you could start like at that day, you can make them start on a Sunday, you know, depending on when they want to kind of start it, it's fine as long as we reasonably make sure they're not pregnant. And how do we do that? Um, they shouldn't have had any sex after their last normal menses. Um, they are, they should be using correctly and consistently a reliable form of contraception, or they're less than or equal to seven days after a spontaneous or induced abortion, um, or within four weeks postpartum, or more than 85% of the feeds, if they're breastfeeding, are actually coming from complete exclusive breastfeeding, not even pumping for that matter for the most part, and they have to be less than six months postpartum. So if they meet all these criteria and you're reliably certain that they're not pregnant, you could pretty much start them on anything. Um, if you start them within five days of the menstrual bleeding, you really don't need any protection and on top of it. But if you don't, you need additional protection for about seven days, right? So that's how you give it to them. I usually give them, if it is like pill, uh, patch or ring, like I give them um, more than one at a time, like at least three with like four refills or more than that if their insurance actually pays for it because that's known to make them take it regularly so they don't have to go back and forth to the pharmacy. And once you send them home, you do have, um, you know, they have some problems associated with it. And the most common one, as Faye mentioned, is actually the breakthrough bleeding. Um, this is kind of bleeding that happens while taking the birth control pills, and it resolves in about um, three to six months with consistent use. So the first and foremost thing is to make sure they're taking the pill 
or patch a ring consistently, like we told them, no delayed insertions or um, missing a pill or taking it late. That might solve the problem for the most part. But if those things are not solving the problem, there's always room to rule out any other gynecological conditions. They may be having a polyp or cervicitis or something else going on. And if still bleeding, then you may either have to change formulation. For example, if they are on a progestin like norethindrone, which is a short acting progestin, you may wanna switch them to levonorgestrel or a higher potency progestin, and that may change it. Or if they're on a lower dose ethanyl estradiol, you may try to kind of increase the dose, although that's kind of controversial. Usually a change in the progestin um, is better, but if not, you can try changing the ethanyl estradiol level. But if everything fails, sometimes like if they're on like a continuous regimen and they've done it for two months and they're still bleeding, you could probably give a hormone-free interval of three to four days just to reset um, and then have them start again. And these are some of the things that we can do to manage some of the um, breakthrough bleeding. Um, the selective practice recommendation has beautiful charts for missed pills or late insertion or late usage of these pill patch and ring. So I strongly urge all the listeners to download that app and look into it if you do have patients coming with either missed pills or, you know, didn't take the patch right or forgot, you know, put, putting the ring on time and things like that. Yeah, definitely a handy app for those middle of the night phone calls of like, what do I do now? <laughs> um, I guess one of the things that I've always thought about hormonal contraceptive as for a gynecologist is like our version of a Swiss army knife, right? Like it seems like we use it for cycle control and contraception, but there's a lot of other benefits to using it too, that we can prescribe to basically get intended other effects. Are you able to talk to us about some of those? Yeah, let's kind of talk about some of the main things, right? So the most common one is bleeding regulation. Um, abnormal uterine bleeding, like AUBO related to ovulation, um, either because of adolescence, perimenopause or PCOS, whatever could be the reason. Um, I think that's one of the most common reasons. Um, there might be desire for amenorrhea. Um, I mean, I can give an example of those with developmental delay who are dependent on caregivers and you really don't want them bleeding every single time. So sometimes there is like benefit with amenorrhea or sometimes scheduled bleeding is personal preference. So whatever may be the reason, bleeding regulation is one of the most common non-contraceptive benefits. And we know that combined hormonal contraceptives um, do decrease um, the amount of flow and also like significantly improve like the bleeding, um, heavy menstrual bleeding. So if you were to pick a progestin, um, I would probably pick a levonorgestrel or pick an extended cycle regimen, right? So you actually have frequent, uh, less frequent menstrual cycles and that may really help with that. So that is kind of, you know, the bleeding regulation and abnormal uterine bleeding. The next one is usually management of dysmenorrhea. Significantly combined hormonal contraceptives reduce dysmenorrhea, um, especially for adolescents, like long-term NSAID use is also not that great. So I think if you're really looking for a long-term option for controlling dysmenorrhea, 
low-dose combined hormonal contraceptives or low-dose oral contraceptive pills too um, are really great. And again, if they're missing school with like severe adolescents, for example, or missing school or work or anything with severe dysmenorrhea, extended cycle regimen is also great because again, less number of periods, less number of days with pain and significant improvement in quality of life. Along the same line of dysmenorrhea is like the endometriosis treatment. Um, we clearly know that there is like significantly lower incidence of endometriosis um, and reduction in like the formation of endometrioma with the um, oral contraceptive pills have been studied extensively on it. Um, and also I think there are studies that say that if you take like a surgical resection of endometrioma and put them on the combined hormonal contraceptives, that's also beneficial for them. Significantly reduces the menstrual pain. Um, usually we go for either like an extended cycle regimen because there is less number of cycles, but also the extended cycle regimens, um, they prevent like the pseudo distalization of the endometriotic implant. So that also helps with the endometriosis patients. But we have to remember this is not curative, meaning once we stop it, things may come back, but definitely um, suppresses the symptoms of endometriosis. So that's another significant benefit that we think of. Um, Mood-wise, like PMS and PMDD management um, is really kind of dependent on this too. And for that, I think um, FDA-approved treatment with the drosperinone containing combined oral contraceptives as a treatment option to reduce like PMS and PMDD symptoms. Um, and that's been pretty much studied well. Um, so that's actually another non-contraceptive use. Um, and the other most common one is acne. Um, it's kind of a delayed benefit. I always have to remind my patients that it may take up to six months because remember that combined oral contraceptives or any combined hormonal contraceptives, they act by suppressing the ovulation. Um, I mean, the ovarian production of like androgens and also by, um, you know, uh, inducing the hepatic production of the sex hormone blind, binding globulin, which binds to the testosterone and does, you know, there's like that delayed effect. Um, so it's not immediate, but definitely useful. Um, I always like, you know, the FDA actually approved only three different pills for acne protection. I think it's orthocycline, which has norgestimate, um, estrostep, which has norethindrone, and Yaz has drosterinone in it. So even though it's the brands that are approved, but most of the generic formulations, which by the way, have pretty good bioequivalence compared to the brand products also work similarly. So that's a great additional benefit. Um, and last but not the least, I also wanted to put a word about these functional ovarian cysts, right? So these people who you see in the ER with hemorrhagic cysts and who come in back and forth with um, cyst management, those are other people, again, birth control pills or combined hormonal contraceptives are not, they're not going to prevent or treat, but um, extended cycle regimens usually can reduce the formation of these um, as well. So, I mean, we can keep going, but these are some of the most common one. Um, and again, recently, I think there was a lot of press about cancer protection, as we know, ovarian cancer, 50% reduction almost, endometrial cancer, about 30% reduction, and 15 to 20% reduction, like colon cancer. So, I mean, we can keep listing the goodness of these combined hormonal contraceptives in terms of the non-contraceptive benefit, but these were some of the main things that I wanted to highlight. 
And I guess just kind of like the last thing to just touch on, um, can you also talk a little bit about the risks or disadvantages of being on combined hormonal contraceptives? Right. So um, the most uh, common one is you have to do something on a periodic basis. So convenience is one great advantage, but at the same time, there is room for error. So that's one of the disadvantages. But if we really talk about the risks, again, um, the most um, serious but again, rare is the VTE or the venous thromboembolism risk, right? So it is usually due to estrogen component and is dose dependent. And that's why I think that's one thing that we do need to talk about when we talk about the risks of um, combined hormonal contraceptives, because they all contain this estrogen component. Progestins by itself, they have no impact, but I think when combined with estrogen, some can modulate the strength of the estrogen's production of these clotting factors, um, but really it's the estrogen that um, makes it um, you know, thrombogenic. Um, though I think the relative risk of thrombosis is definitely higher with in the combined hormonal contraceptive users, but it's the absolute risk of thrombosis is still a rare event in like a healthy young user. So I always have to tell my patients that yes, if they Google about it, they will read about this and it is a risk and I do talk to them about it, but um, the risk is really rare in young healthy individual, but the risk does increase with age, um, increased BMI, those who are smokers um, and those who are on the higher estrogen dosage. So I think all the more reason not to start people on higher doses unless absolutely essential. Um, and also to keep in mind all the additional risk factor when we are starting someone on combined hormonal contraceptives, because that's, you know, that's something that we need to keep in mind. Similar things about like MI and stroke, you know, there are risks associated with it by itself, although they don't kind of make a huge difference, but a combination of age smoking status, like pre-existing hypertension or, you know, any additional risk factor, you have to be careful or you have to counsel the patient really well um, before starting on combined hormonal contraceptives. But I think, you know, in a good candidate with low risk, um, the benefits are so much greater, um, but you always have to counsel them about the potential risks. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shridhar, for coming on to our podcast and talking to us about combined hormonal contraceptives. This was really great um, and really gave us a good overview um, of a topic that I think, you know, of course we should know more about, but I think we often talk about very, we don't talk about very much um, in residency. So thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me um, on your show because I've, I've you know, listen to so many of this. It's so happy to be a part of it. And uh, thank you to all the listeners as well. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee. Or if you love the show and want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a question for us, a correction for any of our prior episodes, or a question for Dr. Sridhar, email us, creogsovercoffee, gmail.com.